Hello and welcome to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm David Clegg, the editor of The Courier, and I'm here for an emergency episode given the unprecedented developments of the last 24 hours. I'm going to be joined by our political editor, Derek Healy, and our great columnist and former leader of the Scottish Labour Party, Kezia Dugdale. Thank you guys for uh, answering the clarion call when we sent up the bat signal and said, the Prime Minister's resigned. Can we do a quick podcast? It's very it's very much appreciated. I'll start with you, Derek, and you can fill us in a little bit with uh, what's happened today. I, I should say that as we're speaking, it is 5 p.m. on Thursday, the 20th of October. So we'll try and get this podcast out as quickly as possible so that we're not out of date before it gets into your ears. Derek, I was covering frontline politics for nine years, and in that time, I saw two prime ministers. It feels like you've beat me already, and you've been in the game a little bit of a shorter time. Uh, yeah. Tell us tell us what has happened. Oh, it's been an interesting period, hasn't it? I mean, I think um, waking up this morning, there was a feeling that something could happen. Um, so last night, we saw fairly chaotic scenes at Westminster with the contentious fracking vote. Um, we had reports that there was some shoving, some manhandling, a little bit of bullying going on um, late in the evening. And it really seemed like that was really approaching the end for Liz Truss and her time in, in, at number 10. You had the Home Secretary resign. Um, you had at one stage, it looked, as, it looked as if our Chief Whip had resigned and then maybe not resigned. It was just, you know, absolutely chaotic. So I think going into today, we knew that something was going to have to budge and it was whether or not this was going to be a resignation. Um, we started to hear kind of late in the morning, early afternoon, there was going to be a, a speech being made. Uh, and then, of course, we saw that famous lectern being being brought out. And I think <laughs> very quickly it was clear that this was going to be the moment. Um, what we know now is that um, Liz Truss is going to be definitely standing down. We are going to have a leadership election, which is going to be concluded by the end of next week, apparently. Um, the suggestion is that this, this is not going to go to members. Um, it's going to be basically a bit of a coronation. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be a very, very interesting week ahead as well. It's not going to get any calmer. Kezia, thank you very much for joining us. Um, and I, I introduced you as a columnist. Do you want to tell us what your day job is as well, first of all? And then uh, you can just let's just start by what you make of the chaos of the last few days. Sure, it's lovely to be here and my day job is as director of the John Smith Centre where we exist to make the positive case for politics and public service, a gig that's getting harder and harder as each day it goes by and what a momentous <laughs> day in British politics this is, perhaps the most momentous day since the last momentous day, they seem to come uh, all together very quickly uh, these days. But yes, I think if you'd asked me yesterday if I thought Liz Truss was going to survive the week, I would have given you 50-50 odds. I thought those odds were going to improve this morning. There wasn't a, a rush this morning of um, significant MPs or significant secretaries of states calling for her to go. But really, she just ran out of road by lunchtime today. I think we all knew the game was up when she went to see Sir Graham Brady, who is, of course, the chair of the 1922 committee. 
that's the man in the grey suit or the man with the whiskey and the revolver who really had to say to her, it's time to go. What happens next? Well, very quickly, what we've seen is the leaders of the Liberal Democrats, the SNP, and of course the Labour Party demanding an instant general election. They all have reasons to want a general election. They are all riding high in the polls. They will all benefit from that. And as a former Labour leader and somebody who supports the Labour Party, I too would back a general election. But <laughs> let me make a slightly different case for it. I actually think it's in the interests of the next Conservative Prime Minister to have a general election. What we've seen is uh, the lack of a general election since COVID. The last time we all voted was back in 2019. And COVID has fundamentally changed the economics uh, of the country, the, the balance sheet that governments are faced with, the decisions that have to be taken about this country's future. And we can see from Liz Truss's short time in office, and she had 45 days in post, it actually took them 54 days to elect her, and she only had 45 days in post. Trying to bring your ideology to the fore without the mandate of the people behind you or indeed the support of your political party is incredibly difficult. The decisions in the entry of the next Prime Minister are going to be extraordinarily difficult. And I actually think a general election would give them the power and the accountability and the mechanisms they need to deliver on the platform that they want to bring to the people. And nothing focuses party discipline quite like having a general election in the near future. So, so my argument, if you want me to make a prediction, is that Rishi Sunak will be Prime Minister by uh, next Friday and that the first thing he should do is say there will be a general election in May 2023. That will give him uh, a mandate to get through the winter period to follow the prospectus that he put forward in the leadership election contest. And it will also allow him to get party discipline back, uh, rallied behind him, which is what he needs if he wants to lead the country. Derek, what's your thoughts on the politics of that? Because I guess, let's say that it is Rishi Sunak, or that Rishi Sunak certainly sounds like he's standing, and uh, it, it probably won't be uncontested by the sound of it. If he tells the MPs that may decide this that he's going to have a general election, they may, they may be looking at the polling at the minute, I suppose, and think, God, if he has a general election, I'm going to lose my seat. So that could there could be some difficulty there. So I just what 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 what's your sense from talking to conservative members of parliament or conservative members and activists about the appetite for a general election? It seems to me that the democratic hygiene almost demands one. But what's your sense of the likelihood of it? Well, I think there's going to be two clear camps on this. I think there's going to be MPs who will look at that polling data you've been talking about and say, my goodness, I might lose my seat. Um, and obviously they won't. <laughs> that would be the last thing they want to do. Um, I think there'll be quite a lot of Conservative MPs who will be in that position. If you look at some of these latest polls that have come out, they are absolutely remarkable. Um, and I think that's, that's what they'll be looking at and, and worrying about. But at the same time, you're also starting to hear some conversations about, okay, so if there was a general election, it would be extremely tough to see a Conservative government being being formed out of that. But you've got to look beyond that as well to actually what happens next. You know, how do, how do you start to come back from that? If you're seen as acting in the national interest and calling for a general election, even then if you lose this round, you can stand to fight another day. And you're starting to hear more and more of that conversation. And I think that definitely starts to come into people's thinking as well. So I think there'll be those, those two clear camps and two schools of thought in this. It is interesting. I have heard for the first time, and certainly in my memory, I've heard Conservatives saying maybe we need a spell in opposition chaos. Mm -hmm. That's quite an un that's a particularly unusual thing for a for a Conservative to say because the Conservative Party is normally uh, defined by its thirst for power. Is there a, a sense that even even signed up Conservatives are just completely scunnered to use a Scottish word with the way things have gone recently? 
So I think if you take the, the long view, there is merit to that argument. So we know the next couple of years in terms of public spending are going to be incredibly difficult against the backdrop of rising inflation and interest rates, a, a war in Ukraine. It might be that you think a period in office for the Labour Party taking all of these difficult decisions might earn you a Conservative government in the future that would last a longer period of time. That's a theory. I don't think it passes much of a test, but it's definitely a theory. But I really like your idea of democratic hygiene. And let's just focus on that for a second, because, of course, that works both ways. I think as commanding a lead the Labour Party has in the polls at the moment, it is as soft as butter. And under the spotlight of a general election, you get that democratic hygiene both ways. So suddenly the spotlight goes on Labour and Labour are forced early to say, OK, so what will you do on the pension lock? Will you keep that in place? Will you increase benefits in line with inflation? Will you spend more on the NHS? Will you have 3% GDP on defence? And suddenly when Labour say yes, yes, yes to all of those things, Labour's under the spotlight around how are they going to pay for it and what are the different tax choices that emanate from that? Which is why I think it's actually really smart, again, for the Tories to agree to a general election, not tomorrow, not before Christmas, but in May 2023, to just rebalance some of this, make sure the heat, the accountability, that Democrat process affects all the political parties and of course that has certain ramifications in Scotland as well which I'm sure we'll get to. Just to stick with you for the for a minute Kez from from the Labour perspective there as you said you're a former uh, leader of the, of the Labour in Scotland they up to this point have been in opposition while chaos has been engulfing the country so they haven't really had to have a coherent policy platform ready yet and the general election we thought maybe wasn't for a, wh- a while away how ready is your sense what's your sense of how ready they are to not just say this conservative government is a disgrace and they must go but actually is to say here is our full costed manifesto for what we would do because if if we get a general election in short order that's something that they'll have to put together in a hurry so i think Keir Starmer, Sir Keir Starmer, is incredibly ready to be Prime Minister. In fact, I don't think there is anybody else in the House of Commons who has more of an appropriate CV to take on the job at such a difficult time that the country finds itself in. There's a different political question or a different political dynamic to that, which is, are are the Labour Party ready? And I think there's a fundamental ideological question that the Labour Party has to grapple with, which is how much of an alternative does it want to offer the country? So on the one hand, the markets are saying they need stability and they need security and they need a clear sense of the direction. But on the other hand, the Labour Party exists for working people. It wants to do things markedly differently. It wants to reform markets. It wants to reform social care, for example, to invest more in public services, to ensure that the rich pay more of a share of what it costs to run a fair and equal progressive society. And I don't get a strong sense yet from the Labour Party where that balance between being slightly more progressive than the status quo and being the radical, alternative, progressive, social democratic party it wants to be is. I don't know what side Keir Starmer's fallen down on that. I'm not sure the Labour Party quite knows where it wants to be on that scale yet. And that will really matter in a general election because I think the public want a bit more than just not the Tories. They want to know that life will get better. They want a sense of hope. But of course, that sense of hope comes with a price tag and that takes us straight back to those big economic questions. Great, thank you. Uh, Derek, let's let's stick on that point. So, something that uh, struck me while while Kez was talking there. This podcast uh, is about three years old now, and we launched it in the run up to the general election, where Boris Johnson got his majority. And at that time, 
all we talked about was infighting in the Labour Party, the chaos engulfing the Labour Party, the various tribes of the Labour Party. What a what a turnaround there's been on on that because partially I guess it's because the Conservatives fighting like rats and sacks has um has taken some of the focus of that away. Do you think if you scratch underneath the surface, if the public begins to look at the Labour Party as a potential party of government in the very near future, that that the that those divisions opened up by Jeremy Corbyn's leadership are are still bubbling away under the surface and could explode at any moment? I would be really interested to hear Kessie's answer on that, actually. Um, I, 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 <laughs> well, I sus- we'll, we'll ask her shortly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I suspect a lot of that still will, will be there. Um, I'd imagine definitely there'll be, there'll be elements of that still going on for sure. Yeah, so the, the interesting thing about a general election is that it does focus minds. So you're not going to have people split as widely. You know, you're not going to have all these people going over to Labour um, and the way that the polls are showing, they will move back across. Um, you know, with any election, that that kind of optimistic message is really important, but so is that message of competence. And I think that one of the really key things that people will look at is, okay, how have the Conservatives been performing over the past four months, five months? And then look at what is being offered for Labour. And I think at that stage, the personality aspect matters less. Um, the kind of infighting that we saw under kind of Jeremy Corbyn matters less. Because you do have this kind of idea of competence that that Keir Starmer has done quite well to to create for himself. Okay, Kez, Derek's keen to hear your answer, and so am I. What, <laughs> what what's what what's your sense? I know that you're not under the bonnet in the same way it used to be, but what's your sense of? I mean, I have to say I've been astonished at the way Keir Starmer seems to have been able to purge the hard left. I mean, I, I I thought that that battle had been lost at one point, and he it, it's been quite it's been quite remarkable. Do you do you think that 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 there's certainly a part of middle of the of middle of the middle ground that was concerned about elements that were in control of the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn? Do you think that that has been detoxified completely, or is that still an issue? So, so here's some things you need to understand about Sir Keir Starmer. One, he's incredibly hardworking, he's strategic, he's forensic, and takes a diligent, conscientious approach to everything he's ever touched. Now, some people cast that aside and say he's boring, but there are sort of five positive attributes for him. So what he's done over the three years he's been in post is systematically break down all of the problems that created the infighting in the Labour Party and, and reframe them towards his advantage. So, for example, he is now a strong majority on the National Executive Committee of the party, so he doesn't have to worry about being deposed by his national body every time he goes into a meeting in the way that Jeremy Corbyn might have had to worry about. And before he's rooted out anti-Semitism, um, lots of people have left the Labour Party in recent times. I'm going to argue that that's a good thing in the sense that a lot of the people have left have been of the Corbyn inclination that, that didn't support the direction of the party that, that Keir Starmer wants and that's concentrated his power within the party. Right now, the party's in the process of selecting its candidates for a general election whenever that contest might take place. And if you follow that closely, you can see that more often than not, it's Starmerites rather than Corbynites that are coming through those selection processes. So step by step, he's rebuilding a party in his own image. And as a consequence of all of those things together, I think he's far less likely to face really serious infighting or factionalism in the context of a general election. Okay, that's interesting. 
Derek, let's move on to the issue that you can't have a Scottish politics uh, podcast uh, on any issue without getting into, which is how this affects the Scottish independence debate. So so we, we were at SNP conference recently. We heard Nicola Sturgeon say there's going to be a referendum almost a year to today, a year yesterday, I think. If that doesn't happen, if the this court ongoing court case doesn't go our way, she'll use the next general election as a de facto re- referendum. So, first of all, what do we think this general chaos uh, means for Scottish independence? It feels like it should be a boost. Is it short term or is there, a, is there long term implications? And also, if this general election that we seem to think could be in the offing comes along, how, how will they do? Well, first of all, that's assuming that the, the general election comes after the Supreme Court verdict. I mean, it's very soon that then that's a whole other element of chaos to think about, really, isn't it? Who knows what happens there? Um, I think it's really, really interesting in terms of what impact it has. I, um, a little while ago, had a, a conversation with uh, Sir John Curtis talking about Boris Johnson leaving. And does this, does Boris Johnson leaving? He was very unpopular in Scotland. Is that the is that the SNP sort of missing the boat, or the yes side missing the boat to have an independence referendum whilst he's Prime Minister? And, and what John Curtis told me was, no, not really. Um, Boris Johnson was unpopular. But not when it comes to independence, the thing that had moved the dial on that was not necessarily his personality. It was policies. It was things like Brexit and, and putting Brexit through in the way that they did. So what's going to be interesting here is not necessarily the fact that Liz Truss is gone, but it's who comes in next and what their policies are and, and how that shapes things. And I think that's what's going to matter in terms of the independence question. So... You know, at the moment, I think it's very much up in the air. So if, if Boris Johnson comes back in, that's one of the things they're talking about today. Could Boris Johnson become Prime Minister again? Yeah, it's all up in the air. It's, 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 it's so chaotic that it's very, very difficult to tell. You know, you talk about it being one year away. Who knows where we're going to be in a year's time? Kezia, what's your sense of where the Scottish independence movement is and uh, how, how the... I mean, as, as, a, as a movement which is based on the fact that they would do better on their own away from Westminster. The last few days are bound to ha, help out that argument a little. What Do you think this is a time of opportunity for Nicola Sturgeon or do you think there's risks here? So I think it's I think it's incredibly risky for the SNP right now, actually. Um, I think they've got themselves into a real sticky wicket in terms of a general election and the role that independence would, would play in that. And I'll, I'll say something about that in a second. But look, let's start from the premise that nationalists want independence it's what they get up for every single day of the week and right now they will feel even more fervor in their beliefs and their arguments because of the the mess that they see in Westminster and diagnosing it as a byproduct of the Westminster system a system which is holding Scotland back from making progressive different choices in the way that they want to take the country in a different direction so they will get a bit of a a morale boost from this mess They'll, they'll believe their cause is rising they may well see a shift in the polls but actually the prospect of there being another referendum hangs on A, this court case, and and B, a general election. Now, if we assume, and we probably shouldn't, but just for the sake of argument, let's assume that the Supreme Court finds in favour of the UK government and says the Scottish Parliament has no capacity to have an advisory referendum. The next card in Nicola Sturgeon's pack is this general election. And you would think the SNP are good at winning general elections. They've got a great record of it in recent times. But the reason they're so good at it is they've always been able to define it. They've always been able to set the frame. And the frame they've gone for is stronger for Scotland. And in fact, they've been so good at that, they've established it 
as a, a metric that is higher than your economic stability or how well the NHS is going or how well your kids are doing in school, they set the test in elections, say which party's best at standing up for Scotland and they win it every time. I don't think they'll be able to set the frame at this general election. I think that's going to be swept aside entirely by the economic crisis and a growing mood in the country that we have an opportunity to change who govern us across the whole of the United Kingdom. And I think there's an argument that Labour can make here that says, well, the SNP are always telling you you should get the governments that you vote for. Well, look at what's happened. You voted SNP in the last three general elections. You've got Tory prime ministers. If you vote Labour, you'll get a Labour government. I think there's a, there's a route there for Labour to masterly carefully craft that could take this general election in a different direction Derek what's your thoughts on how uh, this is shaping up for the SNP yeah I mean I agree with that I think um, so we saw when Nicola Sturgeon set out her economic prospectus um, she tried to effectively use the kind of economic chaos that we've seen and say well you know there's an optimistic alternative of independence so why don't you go for that I think that if we if we get to the stage where there's a general election and you have to kind of boil down these arguments the reality is that you know, an election in May, if we say it's going to be in May, would very much still be focusing on the cost of living crisis. The suggestion is that this could go on for months and months and months, maybe a year, maybe longer. So any general election is going to be fought on that basis. If your answer to that question, because that's what it would need to be if you're putting independence forward as being your main talking point, well, that answer involves, you know, possibly a decade of really difficult decisions, um, possibly uh, higher taxes, spending cuts we saw, uh, IFS talking about that this week. Um, whatever you frame it, it's not an easy solution. It's not. It's not something that's immediate. It's not something like let's take this forward this year and here's a solution to the cost of living crisis. That's going to put money in your pocket. That's going to lower your energy bills right now. That's a long term plan that you're trying to convince people that in 10, 15 years things will be better. I think that's incredibly difficult at a general election to put that on the ballot paper and say this is what this is what we're going for. Um, so I think it would be very difficult for them if that's what it looks like. I wonder if there's there could be one advantage of this general election coming a bit earlier than we'd expected because it seems if there's got if there's one coming if we follow Kez's uh, theory that Rishi Sunak says we'll have an election straight away after I get made prime minister it could be before Christmas we're not going to get the doesn't sound like we're going to get the. <laughs> The judgment from the from the court by that point, because my sense of the risk in the de facto referendum strategy is you're saying that by your own measure, you've got to get 50 percent in a general election or else you've lost a referendum, at which point you're you're done. I always felt that that was an impossibly that was an impossibly high bar. If we if there's is there is there a way that Nicola Sturgeon could say, well, the court hasn't ruled yet. This general elections came much quicker than planned. Let's set that aside and say, we're not doing that now. We're just going to say, we'll hold the Tory government to account. We'll hold Labour to account. We'll stand up for Scotland in the way that they'd previously run those messages. It, does, does, do, do these events give give, give her a, a get-out clause from, from this de facto referendum case? So first of all, my argument was that, that Rishi should say he's going to have a general election, but not have it until next May. So he, he creates that. No, oh, that sorry, I, 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 missed, I missed a subtle day of that. Sorry. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't worry, but I'll, I'll follow your argument regardless, because there may well be a general election um, before Christmas. Yeah. It is now plausible, if not likely. Yeah. Um, and I think, actually, the Supreme Court would have to respond to that. And that we have seen examples in the past where cases are expedited because of uh, how critical um, they have become. So, for example, we saw that in Joanna Cherry's case around Brexit. That was expedited because of the implications it would have for the timescale. So we might see that. Um, I do think, though, you're right when it says 
when you say it's going to be incredibly difficult for the SNP to deliver 50% share of the vote, I actually think there is no way that they will not lose seats. So even if Labour don't do as well as expected on the current polling, with Labour just on one seat just now, the, the, the benchmark to look at is 2017, when Labour, and I was leader then, went from one to seven seats. It's because they took seats in areas where there was a high no vote that was rallying against an election that was focused around this idea of independence being at the fore. So I think certain seats will fall back quite quickly to Labour in a general election. Seats like East Lothian, a couple of seats in Fife, maybe um, Inverclyde in the West, one or two seats in North Lanarkshire or South Lanarkshire area. You can see fairly quickly how Labour get to 10 without not much moving in the polls. What's very difficult to see is how Labour get to 20, 30, 40, how that SNP vote collapses altogether. I'm not arguing that's what will happen. But any fallback in the number of seats that the SNP uh, have in the general election is a dent in the cause for independence and sets her plan for a referendum back quite considerably and potentially will have a serious impact on, on her standing as first minister. She might consider time's up for her. Okay. Derek, here's a question that will be on people's minds. We've seen people close to Rishi Sunak saying that he'll stand, which I think we all think is very likely. Uh, I think Penny Morden has actually declared do you think that Boris Johnson is coming back? There's been some suggestions from people close to him that that he feels it may be in the national interest for this this titan to return. Um, what do you think the chances of it happening are? That was a line, wasn't it? Yeah, national interest. I, I genuinely have no idea. I think, see, at normal times, I would <laughs> well, have said... Well, I, I, I credit you for your honesty, at least. At <laughs> normal times, I would have said, well, no way, of course not. I mean, the, the way the party, the party, no chance, no way at all. You never know. I mean, it, I think if it was ever going to happen, this would be the time. I mean, the you saw the, the argument of it about this is somebody that could unite the party and national interest. You've seen some of those arguments already being made, which would suggest that there is, it's coming from somewhere. It's coming from somewhere. And uh, the bookies usually have a quite a good idea, don't they? And they're, they're slashing odds on it. So you never know. Maybe it could happen. That that is that that is clearly the maximum banter option. As for it to be. <laughs> it, it'll certainly give you the most entertaining coffee. That's for sure. Uh, Kez, as someone who uh, spends a lot of time working to uh, rekindle faith in politics and public service, <laughs> you must be a bit dismayed at the way that this kind of thing's playing out because it doesn't it doesn't really it's not really a good look for the political climate, is it? No, and it's been desperate for some time. And, you know, we think about that really um, hard at the John Smith Centre. And actually, I'm, I'm not about to try and give you a, a big speech about how, you know, it's it's all worth it and we still need people to stand and be part of the democratic process, which are all things that I believe. What we're trying to do now is to make sure that young people in particular don't look at the political world and all these events that they're living through and think that the only power and agency they have is to protest. That, that's my that's my real worry at the minute, is that they'll become so disengaged, they'll be the people standing outside the House of Commons demanding change rather than consider committing their life to being part of that process of change. So we're taking a step even further back now and going, right, look, what can we do to make sure the brightest and best still think about a life um, in public service, whether that be in the civil service, working for charities, NGOs, in and around politics, that's where we need to keep healthy democratic possibility alive and to keep people engaged in that kind of policymaking process. But you're right, it's, it's really grim and, and it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be like this. Um, and I, I do think we're at the end of a really 
bizarre period of populism knocking out all the normal orders of how our politics should work in this country. The end game is coming. I, I think it'll take a general election to shake it out. But it's totally plausible that after the next general election, we'll be back to two boring, middle-aged, middle-class men at the forefront of politics. It'll be like the 90s all over again and we can all get back to our lives. It must be a bit depressing that that's the ambition. Um, <laughs> but, there we, but, but there we go. Presumably your training sessions do not... <laughs> But presumably your training sessions don't teach young people how to wrestle their colleagues into a division lobby. So uh, we can we can move on. I'm going to finish with one question and I just want a yes or no answer. Uh, Derek Healy, do you feel at all sorry for Liz Truss? No, I don't. No. Do you, do you, want, a, do you want a reason for that or do you just want yes or no? Yeah, go ahead then. If you, it sounds like you've got a reason. Uh, no, I, I don't really. Because I think um, the impression I get is that this is somebody who has a very solid idea of what their politics are, had come forward with this. Um, you know, she's very clear what she said in the membership she's going to do. She decided this is the right way forward for the country. And, and quite frankly, I don't think it was thought out. And I think that if you're going to be the Prime Minister, you should probably have an idea of whether your ideas actually stack up. I mean, it's why I'm not running to be Prime Minister, because mine wouldn't. Um, so I think you should have that about you. And I don't think she did. So no, I don't feel particularly sorry. I think it's a lesson for other people that get your ideas in order before you get to that stage, quite frankly. So that, there you go. Derek will not be standing down the streets <laughs> as soon as the couriers gain. Kezia, as someone as someone who's been in a, a has been a high profile woman in politics, do you have some sense of feeling sorry for Liz Truss? Because let's face it, it is the most dramatic humiliation imaginable. I, I don't uh, feel sorry for her though, as, as as much as it's been really unedifying uh, and difficult um, to watch. Um, let me be really selfish for a second and say I've been putting a mortgage application through for the whole length of time that Liz Truss has been Prime Minister. And whilst I've got a salary and enough ballast to cope with what a sudden jump in interest rates might, might mean in my pocket, I actually feel like I've got a really strong sense of what that would be like for people who don't have that comfort blanket, yeah. who are really, really struggling just now. And I think... Somebody like Liz Truss, who put £60 billion worth of additional borrowing onto the public balance sheet in two weeks, doesn't deserve an ounce of pity from anyone. Thank you very much for that. Thanks again for joining us, Kezi. I appreciate you taking the time. Derek, thank you for inviting me back to take your hosting duties so that we could benefit from your insight and didn't have to benefit from mine. Uh, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, I've been David Clegg, and this has been The Stishy. Cheers. The Stushi is the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster and our communities so that you can be better briefed. Don't miss an episode by following The Stushi today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow Stushi Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.